of Human Bondage by W. Somerset Maugham, Chapter 67, Segment 1. Philip looked forward to his return to London with impatience. During the two months he spent at Blackstable, Nora wrote to him frequently, long letters in a bold, large hand in which, with cheerful humor, she described the little events of the daily round, the domestic troubles of her landlady, rich food for laughter, the comic vexations of her rehearsals. She was walking on in an important spectacle at one of the London theaters, and her odd adventures with the publishers of novelettes. Philip read a great deal, bathed, played tennis, and sailed. At the beginning of October, he settled down in London to work for the second conjoint examination. He was eager to pass it, since that ended the drudgery of the curriculum. After it was done with, the student became an outpatient's clerk and was brought in contact with men and women as well as with textbooks. Philip saw Nora every day. Lawson had been spending the summer at Poole and had a number of sketches to show of the harbor and of the beach. He had a couple of commissions for portraits and proposed to stay in London till the bad light drove him away. Hayward, in London too, intended to spend the winter abroad, but remained week after week from sheer inability to make up his mind. Hayward had run to fat during the last two or three years. It was five years since Philip first met him in Heidelberg, and he was prematurely bald. He was very sensitive about it and wore his hair long to conceal the unsightly patch on the crown of his head. His only consolation was that his brow was now very noble. His blue eyes had lost their color. They had a listless droop, and his mouth, losing the fullness of youth, was weak and pale. He still talked vaguely of the things he was going to do in the future, but with less conviction, and he was conscious that his friends no longer believed in him. When he drank two or three glasses of whiskey, he was inclined to be elegiac. I'm a failure, he murmured. I'm unfit for the brutality of the struggle of life. All I can do is stand aside and let the vulgar throng hustle by in their pursuit of the good things. End of segment one. Chapter 67, segment two. He gave you the impression that to fail was a more delicate, a more exquisite thing than to succeed. He insinuated that his aloofness was due to distaste for all that was common and low. He talked beautifully of Plato. I should have thought you'd got through with Plato by now, said Philip impatiently. Would you? he asked, raising his eyebrows. He was not inclined to pursue the subject. He had discovered of late the effective dignity of silence. I don't see the use of reading the same thing over and over again, said Philip. That's only a laborious form of idleness. But are you under the impression that you have so great a mind that you can understand the most profound writer at a first reading? I don't want to understand him. I'm not a critic. I'm not interested in him for his sake, but for mine. Why do you read, then? Partly for pleasure. Because it's a habit, and I'm just as uncomfortable if I don't read as if I don't smoke, and partly to know myself. When I read a book, I seem to read it with my eyes only, but now and then I come across a passage perhaps only a phrase which has a meaning for me, and it becomes part of me. I've got out of the book all that's any use to me, and I can't get anything more if I read it a dozen times. You see, it seems to me one's like a closed bud, and most of what one reads and does has no effect at all. 
but there are certain things that have a peculiar significance for one, and they open a petal, and the petals open one by one, and at last the flower is there. Philip was not satisfied with his metaphor, but he did not know how else to explain the thing which he felt and yet was not clear about. End of segment two. Chapter 67, Segment 3 You want to do things. You want to become things, said Hayward with a shrug of the shoulders. It's so vulgar. Philip knew Hayward very well by now. He was weak and vain, so vain that you had to be on the watch constantly not to hurt his feelings. He mingled idleness and idealism so that he could not separate them. At Lawson's studio one day, he met a journalist who was charmed by his conversation, and a week later the editor of a paper wrote to suggest that he should do some criticism for him. For forty-eight hours Hayward lived in an agony of indecision. He had talked of getting occupation of this sort so long that he had not the face to refuse outright, but the thought of doing anything filled him with panic. At last he declined the offer and breathed freely. It would have interfered with my work, he told Philip. What work? asked Philip brutally. My inner life, he answered. Then he went on to say beautiful things about Amiel, the professor of Geneva, whose brilliancy promised achievement which was never fulfilled, till at his death the reason of his failure and the excuse were at once manifest in the minute, wonderful journal which was found among his papers. Hayward smiled enigmatically. But Hayward could still talk delightfully about books. His taste was exquisite and his discrimination elegant, and he had constant interest in ideas which made him an interesting companion. They meant nothing to him really since they never had any effect on him, but he treated them as he might have pieces of china in an auction room, handling them with pleasure in their shape and their glaze, pricing them in his mind, and then, putting them back into their case, thought of them no more. End of segment three. Chapter 67, Segment 4 And it was Hayward who made a momentous discovery. One evening, after due preparation, he took Philip and Lawson to a tavern situated in Beak Street. Remarkable not only in itself for its history, it had memories of 18th century glories which excited the romantic imagination, but for its snuff, which was the best in London, and above all for its punch. Hayward led them into a large, long room, dingily magnificent, with huge pictures on the walls of nude women. They were vast allegories of the school of Hayden, but smoke, gas, and the London atmosphere had given them a richness which made them look like old masters. The dark paneling, the massive tarnished gold of the cornice, the mahogany tables gave the room an air of sumptuous comfort, and the leather-covered seats along the wall were soft and easy. There was a ram's head on the table opposite the door, and this contained the celebrated snuff. They ordered punch. They drank it. It was hot rum punch. The pen falters when it attempts to treat of the excellence thereof. The sober vocabulary, the sparse epithet of this narrative are inadequate to the task. And pompous terms, jeweled, exotic phrases rise to the excited fancy. It warmed the blood and cleared the head. It filled the soul with well-being. It disposed the mind at once to utter wit and to appreciate the wit of others. 
It had the vagueness of music and the precision of mathematics. Only one of its qualities was comparable to anything else. It had the warmth of a good heart, but its taste, its smell, its feel were not to be described in words. Charles Lamb, with his infinite tact, attempting to, might have drawn charming pictures of the life of his day. Lord Byron and a stanza of Don Juan, aiming at the impossible, might have achieved the sublime. Oscar Wilde, keeping jewels of Ispahan upon brocades of Byzantium, might have created a troubling beauty. Considering it, the mind reeled under visions of the feast of Elagabalus, and the subtle harmonies of Debussy mingled with the musty, fragrant romance of chests in which have been kept old clothes, ruffs, hose, doublets of a forgotten generation, and the wan odor of lilies of the valley, and the savor of cheddar cheese. End of segment four.